Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. the Bleed Lows Podcast with your hosts, Alonso and Juan, Alicia Del Valle, and the baby-faced gimmick in the sky, Roger. Damas y caballeros, welcome to another edition of the Bleed Lows Podcast. Uh, this week's podcast is presented by our partners at Bet Online. Bet Online is your number one source for all of your basketball info, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines, including the layers player player reports for this year's uh, NBA playoffs. And Bet Online is your sports, is always your sports information headquarters this season, as we have covered you for all of your sports wagering needs: basketball, Major League Baseball, NHL, right up over to the UFC and to MMA uh, and boxing. Excuse me, uh, same difference, whatever. Uh, Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to get all of your betting info, including live betting options and all of your favorite casino and card games you can play right from your home. Uh, so if you head on over to their website today, which is betonline.ag, and you use our promo code, which is BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, you will receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, where the game starts. Uh, this week, uh, rolling by the carne asada uh, is, is, is an intellect that is smarter than Juan and I put together, and I'm so happy for it because it's going to increase the value of this year podcast uh he is a baseball historian and a new york times best-selling author of eight books on baseball and he's about to put one out about a, a guy that we like to talk about quite a bit here uh daybreak at chavez ravine it's a it's a book about fernando valenzuela eric sherman stopping by the podcast eric how are you sir oh, i'm doing fantastic i hope you're doing well as well i am thank you and actually to uh to correct the title because it's a page turner, and so I abbreviated it, so that's my bad. Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers is the appropriate title. It's out May 1st. Uh, somehow, some way, we were able to con someone into an advanced copy, so Juan and I read it, and uh, and it's a great book. So when it comes, you can go order it now, uh, pre-order it uh, you know, on all your platforms, Amazon, the whole bit. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you, uh, for starters, what kind of prompted you to write a book about Fernando Valenzuela? Uh, two things. Uh, the, the first thing was when I came up with the idea, um, we were coming up on the 40th anniversary of Fernando Mania, which of course was in 1981. Um, and what dawned on me was there had never been a book written about Fernando Valenzuela's career and his life um, or, or anything about the impact that he had not just on baseball, but on Mexican-Americans uh, and Latinos all over the world. Uh, and it was stunning to me. Um, and I quickly found out why. Um, uh, Fernando's a very quiet and private man, even though um, he does the color for the Spanish language uh, Dodgers broadcasts. He's, like I said, he's a very private guy and, and was never willing to cooperate on either a book project or a movie pro project. Um, so a lot of times authors want the participation of the subject. Um, so I was reminded by a friend of mine, a writer friend, that Gay Talese had once written a, a long form essay, which was turned into a book entitled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Frank Sinatra wasn't cooperating with Gay Talese either on this Esquire uh, long, long piece. So what Talese did was he followed him around, just kind of observed him, his body language, and then interviewed those inside and outside of his inner circle. And so that's really the formula that I did with Fernando, and I, I think with really good success. I would agree with that. It's, it's a great book uh, from start to finish, but I like one, one thing, and, and I, I, I was thinking of how to word this, because you you tap many ob uh, many many subjects right, and the subject matter obviously is Fernando Valenzuela, but it all kind of revolves around him personally on the field, different personalities, the whole bit. Um, 
you know, you even tap into some of like the political kind of, uh, I don't want to say unrest, but just kind of, uh, you know, at the time there was this weird kind of like now this weird political divide, but at a local level in Los Angeles over, over a, a lot of cultural things, right. Cause everything that happened to Chavez yeah. Ravine, all that stuff. Um, but I like how an apolitical person could also read this and be able to not get, oh, okay. Like I, I see this from both sides because you also interview, just regular people, right? That there's there's a handful of people that that you take their perspective on how different things that Fernando because Fernando really did touch many things politically, you know, sport, all these culturally. Um, and and I think that for me is huge how you're able to relate that to the average Joe, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and and you said it perfectly. Um the Fernando Valenzuela story doesn't start in April of 81 with Fernando Mania. It doesn't start in 1960, the year that he was born. The Fernando Valenzuela story really begins back in 1950, 1951, when through eminent domain, the city of Los Angeles uh, wanted to take over the land uh, that was on Chavez Ravine uh, to build affordable housing uh, for the for the greater good, as the city politicians like to say, uh, in cases of eminent domain. And um, with the Red Scare that occurred around 1953 into 1954, uh, anything deemed socialist or communist in this country, in this case, more socialist, I guess, um, those plans were being scrapped, uh, especially out in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, you had actors and writers and directors who lost their careers because they were believed um, to lean socialist or communist. Um, so that was a big deal ba back then. So the housing project was scrapped. So the city of Los Angeles was stuck with 300 acres of property in Chavez Ravine that they didn't really know what to do with. And in the meantime, you had three primarily Mexican-American neighborhoods in Chavez Ravine. And um, a lot of those residents had already moved out. They had sold their land to the city. A lot of times, unfortunately, for only 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, uh, once again, Mexican-Americans being mar marginalized. Um, but you still had residents living there thinking, well, we're in the clear now, now that this housing project is dead. Um, so they thought that they could stay. Um, but the city eventually sold that land to the Dodgers. The Dodgers were in Brooklyn they were playing in Ebbets Field, 28,000 seats capacity, which was very small. And um, New York, uh, Robert Moses, the city pl planner, was doing very, very little to help the Dodgers find a new home, either in Brooklyn or Queens. Um, so the Dodgers were lured out to Los Angeles, this beautiful property, 300 acres to build their majestic uh, 56,000 seat stadium with plenty of parking right by the freeway. Um, and um, really, uh, you know, the people that were there were, were kind of miffed by, by all this. They're like, well, why do the Dodgers need 300 acres, first of all? Um, and secondly, why, why wasn't the city paying them really what their homes were worth? Um, and what ended up happening is and the visuals were awful. The visuals were on the nightly news and so forth. People were literally being dragged from their homes and then watching homes that they had lived in for maybe two or three generations get bulldozed right before their very eyes. So for 20 years, really from the time they started to build Dodger Stadium, uh, right up until Fernando's first appearance, um, Latinos... Um, particularly Mexican-Americans, were not Dodger fans. Um, I've in, I interviewed numerous reporters that were around in the early 70s, um, and they would tell me maybe 5% of the crowd was Latino in the early 70s. Well, when Fernando arrived, the Dodgers had finally found their Mexican Sandy Koufax that they had craved for over two decades. Um, and all of a sudden, overnight, uh, Fernando is filling the stands and it becomes a Mexican fiesta um, on nights that he pitched. And more than 50% of the fans were Mexican-Americans during Fernando Mania. 
And if you go to the ballpark today, which I have numerous times in recent years, you'll see just as many Fernando jerseys, number 34s, as you'll see Mookie Betts or Freddie Freeman. And so part of the, you know, in the subtitle of the book, the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers, it really alludes to the fan base um, and how uh, Fernando's just incredible impact changed the Dodgers forever. Well, and I, and I, I wasn't alive when the Fernando mania thing happened. I wasn't even a thought I was born in 1986. So, but my good friend here, Juan, uh, who has suffered years and years of abuse as a Dodgers fan as well, uh, <laughs> was, was, was alive and, and, and thriving then. And so Juan, I'd be remiss if I didn't have you chime in on this. Well, Eric, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was the structure. Uh, what you mentioned earlier in terms of, well, why write a book about Fernando Valenzuela? I, I mean, what? how can you approach it in a different angle? What new can you bring to this story, right? Because right. this is a story, it's 40 years old now, and everybody who's a Dodger fan knows the legend uh, of Fernando Valenzuela. So what I really appreciated was that you did start with the historical aspect of this story. And to this day, I mean, just a few years ago, we had protesters who ran on the field who were still protesting about what happened at Chavez Ravine. So it, like you said, it's very easy to start with 81 and just be like, oh, he took over. But and this is to me the why he is such an important figure. And you had talked about how you go to the stadium and the majority of the Dodger fans there are, are Latinos. Was it a, a a specific choice for you to spend all that time setting up the racism that was rampant in Los Angeles at that time? I mean, you, you, there's some great lines in the in the book in the sense that you said having a baseball team comes at a cost, and for Mexican Americans, it it they that cost was paying with their homes and their neighborhoods. Because Mexican-Americans were treated as unimportant. Right. Why did you feel like it was important, especially nowadays, where we're living in an environment where a lot of politicians are trying to erase history and trying to make sure that people, you know, that racism is no longer something that exists in this world. Why was it important for you to start that way? To fully um, um, display the impact that Fernando had um, to fully illustrate it because you're, you, I mean, you nailed it one. I mean, if I had started in 1981, it's still a great story, right? I mean, the, you know, this guy, um, you know, he's 20 years old out of the state of Sonora, Mexico. And, and he, um, you know, he's, he's not a physical specimen at all. Um, you know, and he comes out of nowhere and he has the best, start of a, of a career than better than any starting pitcher in the history of the game um, leads the Dodgers to the world series wins the rookie of the year and the Cy Young award. That's a pretty good story, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, the, the uh, you know, Mexican Americans and Mexicans, they were in the shadows and, and I'm not just talking about Dodger stadium. I'm talking about stadiums, that Fernando uh, visited around the country where all of a sudden you had Mexicans um, and Guatemalans and uh, Costa Rica, Venezuelans that were coming out to stadiums for the first time. Women were coming out to the stadiums for the first time. So when you talk about Fernando, just to talk about um, his performance on the field would be selling him extremely short. And I don't know if you're going to get to this later, but this is why I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame and and um, also why I always believe that the Dodgers should have lifted that unwritten rule about retiring numbers uh, because of impact. And just, I have to get this in. Um, so you received an advanced copy of the book. Well, the Dodgers received a few advanced copies as well. And I write a chapter about um, how I felt that Fernando deserved to have his number retired and also to be considered strong, strongly to make the Hall of Fame. And three weeks later, 
the announcements made that the Dodgers are retiring Fernando's number 34. So you know what? I'm owning it. I, I I'm, I, you know, Fernando, he owes me a cerveza for this one. <laughs> well, that that's fine, Eric, because we're owning it too. For years, we have been running a campaign. I mean, we okay. had Stan Caston on the show and we asked him, you know, why? And it goes back and your book covers this. And this, again, for our listeners, for our viewers, get this book because what Eric does is in, in a way, I, I feel he covers the full story. I think when it comes to Valenzuela, a lot of people just focus on that Fernando mania aspect. I, I want to get into this later, but you, you cover that part after 87. The part of Fernando's career that isn't talked about a lot. And yes, you read my mind, Eric. I totally want to get into that other stuff. But before I, I, I digress to that other stuff, I did want to ask you, there's a number of times that you mentioned Cesar Chavez here. And maybe it's just because I'm someone who loves to read into subtext. But to me, it seemed to be no accident that Cesar Chavez recurs a lot through this book. Are, are we, to? am I going too far by saying there is an equivalency that you're drawing between Valenzuela's contributions and those of Cesar Chavez? Absolutely. They were both so similar. Um, they both had a tremendous impact on Mexicans and Mexican, Mexican-Americans. Um, Cesar Chavez, of course, was a civil rights leader uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, he was a crusader for the rights of the farm workers um, who have who have the worst jobs on earth so we can eat, um, so we can get our vegetables and our fruits. And uh, they work in in terrible conditions, uh, over 100 degrees. And it, it's it, it's so Chavez was a crusader for their rights. Um, and Fernando, even though he wasn't, uh, oh, and by the way, Cesar Chavez was not a good public speaker. And so I draw the, the comparison with Fernando that Fernando, uh, wasn't a, a good public speaker either. In fact, he wasn't really a speaker, um, because of his shyness. Um, so both of them though, just made a tremendous contribution to the Mexican-American uh, community, um, so just in different ways. One did it on the ball field and one did it um, at rallies and, uh, and on the farms. You know, one of the other questions that your book poses that I, I found really uh, fascinating because I, I've heard this many times, and that is, you sit there and you say that two Latinos, Fernando Valenzuela, is like Jackie Robinson. Mm. And I know that sometimes people will take that statement and be like, hey, whoa, come on. I mean, Jackie Robinson, you know, broke the color barrier. But I, I, I know what you're saying by that statement. And I just don't know, is it offensive to say it that way? Or is there a better way of saying the significance? Because the chapter that you talk about in, in Legacy, and I do want to get into that Hall of Fame candidacy, his retiring of the number and stuff. But you do bring up, like, Roberto Clemente is known as the great one, right? right? No one can deny, in, in my opinion... Uh, Clemente's contributions in terms of playing the game is probably the most significant Latino player in the history of Major League Baseball. But then again, you can't, you really just cannot what Valenzuela did, and you talk about it in your book in terms of being that bridge to the international player coming here, but the box office aspect, right. like people all over the country coming in to see Fernando Valenzuela. Yeah, I mean, the perfect, I mean, the Dodgers, uh, I think it was after Fernando's third start of the year, and I write about this, um, the, the next morning, people were already figuring out when the next game would be in which he would start, and they immediately would get an extra 15,000 advanced sales. I mean, the next day, the next morning. Um, I, I think there was one start where he missed a day or something like that. And, uh, the Dodgers made it right with the fans. Um, but 
aside from Dodger Stadium, I mean, I remember a game and I write about this in the book. It was the first time that Fernando came to New York when he played at Shea Stadium. Um, 1981, the Mets weren't just the worst team in baseball, but they were really boring. And fans would go to Shea Stadium not to watch the Mets play, but, you know, if the Reds were in, they'd come to see Johnny Bench and and Pete Rose. Oh, well, not Pete Rose at that point. He was already gone. But, you know, guy, guys like J- Johnny Bench, if the Dodgers were coming in, they'd come to see Steve Garvey um, and Don Sutton and, you know, th- you know, that type of thing. You know what I mean? And um, so they were drawing um, about 8,000 fans a game. And the night that Fernando pitched a Friday night, they drew around 44,000. And I've talked to people that were at that game and they don't recall seeing any empty seats. So what the National League in those days, they only counted um, tickets sold. Um, so Shea Stadium, uh, the capacity was 56,000. So there was probably over 50,000 fans there um, for a team that averaged 8,000 a game. Um, so his impact um, as a draw, I think, was... I'm going to say it. I mean, I think it was greater than Jackie Robinson, uh, greater than Roberto Clemente. uh, And that's taking absolutely nothing, nothing away from the impact that Roberto and Jackie had on baseball at all. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, everyone um, wears number 42 on uh, April 15th for Jackie and, and Roberto Clemente is the great one. Um, and he may have his number retired throughout baseball as well one day. Um, and if, if that happens, deservedly so. But as far as someone that just turned the game around and impacted more people, I even write in the book that he created more new baseball fans worldwide than Babe Ruth. And I'm going to stick to that. And I know that the immediate reaction is going to be, what? Are you kidding? Give it some thought. It's not just the um, the Latin world, but it's also he opened the gates for players um, from other continents like Hideo Nomo and players like that that would come along later. Um, scouting now was global, and a lot of that had to do with Fernando. Well, you don't you don't have to worry, Eric, about you know people getting mad. All the Puerto Ricanos will get mad at at, at us, right, Alonso? Because we uh, we're, we're choosing Valenzuela over Clemente. I mean, that's why I exclusively have been wearing a Mexico hat the last couple of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> Eric Sherman uh, joining us. Uh, he is the author of the book. <clears throat> excuse me, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and Remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. We were fortunate enough to interview him uh, after the, the announcement and all that stuff. Um, and and one thing that I, I, I took away from, from you know, the, the I took a lot of stuff personally and, and, you know, obviously for the platform. But after reading this book, it kind of triggered some things, I guess. Uh, the very first chapter, A Reluctant Hero, there's a there's a quote there from uh, from Pepe, the uh, the Spanish language broadcaster for the Dodgers. Uh, Fernando now realizes his impact, but it took a long time after he retired to think about the great things that he did for the sport and for the fans. And the reason that stuck out to me is I asked him to his face. I mean, because he sat right next to me. Hey, uh, you know, I know this is a big honor, right? Having 34 retired by the Dodgers, but your number has already been retired in an entire league. And, you know, how do you how do you kind of process that and, you know, kind of compare the apples to the oranges? And even with he he could have been vociferous about this, that or the other. He wasn't right. And, and that is is in you know, and I know some people he's kind of in and I know some people also take that as like a pejorative term. But he's like you said, you said so yourself, even in, in your in your uh, in, in your preface of, of the entire book. No one's interviewed him. You had a hard time getting a hold of the guy even to interview him. And and he and he is reclusive. I mean, I to this day I still can't process the fact that we were able to have an in-face interview with him uh and to talk about whatever we talked about. Um, because he is he's a ghost. He's almost just like a ghost, right? He's he's like Prince. He's there and then he's gone the next second. So so I wanted to ask you, with that level of kind of I don't want to say difficulty, but just 
he he's it's just it's ghost like right you had to obviously go track all these these people down to interview them to kind of get all these tidbits and make it all you know make the puzzle work what was there anyone in particular that was on that list that you didn't get to talk to that you wish you would have no and and that's the and if you ask me what surprised me the most about this book pro- project which was over 3 years that's exactly it that you know those closest to fernando could not have been could not have helped me more than they did. Uh, Mike Brito was like a father figure to him. You know, the scout that signed him, and Fernando lived um, on his pr- property for much of his rookie year. M- Mike Brito, you know, again, he, he said, "If you need anything else, don't hesitate." Uh, Jaime Hurin, another fa- father figure, um, who was his interpreter and a course a hall of fame broadcaster for the Dodgers I think for 67 years um uh, in the Spanish language um I mean these were his closest confidants uh, uh Pepe uh Nienguez, I mean another one uh arguably Fernando's best friend like a brother um Jose Mota you know the list goes on and on I mean this was his inner circle these are the people that he has dinner with uh, every night up in the Dodgers press box cafeteria. And they, they, you know, I expected one of them to, to say to me, you know what? Um, Fernando's not involved with this book pr- project. I would prefer not to, you know, with all due respect, I prefer not to. And I would have been fine with that. I, I mean, I would have understood that, but they could not have been more helpful. And, and, and I thought about that quite a bit. And my conclusion is that they want him to get his just um, credit for what he did. And uh, you know, I'm an established author. It's, it's not my first rodeo, this book. I've done seven others. Um, and I think there was a trust factor that was built up through, through that. Uh, but ultimately, they knew that uh, the theme of the book and that it would help Fernando. Uh, maybe it would help get his number retired. Who knows? Um, but he's very well liked. And, and, and I did have the opportunity to meet Fernando very, very briefly. Um, and he's, he's very cordial man, very quiet, um, but extremely cordial as you know. No. And, and, and to, and to your point again, it's, it's kind of, it's crazy to think that all these other people have told a story per se, but then you haven't heard it from him. And then when you hear him talk, then, then it really puts things into perspective. Cause the thing with us that he kept emphasizing wasn't even like the accolades per se. It was the fact that Hey, like there were, I forgot what the question was as a whole, but it was something to the effect of, uh, you know, what, what was your kind of biggest memory of, of a lot of these things? And he kept hyper-focusing the, uh, the value of family and the value of education. And, and again, I mean, and we all joked after that it's like sitting around and talking with your dad and your uncles and cause he smelled like a leather jacket, like the whole thing. And, and, uh, and that's a cultural thing too. Right. And I think that's an important thing that, that I think this book focuses on is the cultural perspective. Cause you talk about his humble beginnings in, in Sonora outside of Navajoa. And I mean, it's similar to my dad. I mean, him and my dad are the exact same age and they didn't have power, you know, until he left town either, you know, granted, you know, it's your, your farmers, your campesinos, as we say in Spanish. And, and it's, it's not an easy upbringing. But he was, you know, able to kind of leverage that, if you will, into what it ended up being, because, you know, you, you talk about all of that stuff. And, and I wanted to ask you, how were you able to get those sorts of details without having to talk to the guy himself? Um, research. Um, I, the Hall of Fame um, in Cooperstown, they have uh, an incredible research library um, just going through. I mean, it's amazing what you find on Google, uh, various newspapers, their archives, LA Times, New York Times. Uh, then there have been some excellent um, books um, that have touched on Fernando. Um, you know, not just about Fernando, but but there have certainly been books that have touched on 
uh, Fernando's upbringing. Um, Sports Illustrated, I know I referenced um, one from 81 where he was on the cover, then he was on the cover again in 85. Um, and those were some excellent um, uh, resources. Um, it's, it's like any book. Um, you just have to dig, dig deep, um, you know, to get research, um, wherever you can, where, you know, you're not able to get it from interviewing people. I mean, we're talking 40 years, 45 years, his upbringing. I mean, it's over 50 years. So, um, you have to go way, way back. Um, but the resources are out there. The first book I ever wrote back in 1994 and 95 on another Dodger, Glenn Burke. I mean, I remember going to the San Francisco public library through their microfilm and doing it that way. But today um, it's a lot easier to get information through the internet, which wasn't accessible to the average Joe back then. True. Uh, Harping on the, you know, obviously we don't have to harp on the the number retirement because that is happening. uh, Thank goodness. Um, the Hall of Fame is an interesting one. We, we've talked about it a little bit on this show. And, and I, I, he, in my opinion, obviously I'm not, uh, you know, I, I mean, we know Josh Rowich, but I, I mean, that's about where it ends, right? Um, uh, I, in my humble opinion, because of something you said earlier, the impact that he's had on the game, I think is worthy for Hall consideration. And, and granted, there's always, you know, the purists, oh no, well, you know, the, the stats don't merit that and all that jazz i mean i still think it's dumb that people were like oh well Derek jeter and mariano rivera should not be unanimous hall of famers why like give me three good reasons why and so so i'm curious to kind of hear your position on on fernando's i guess what would be candidacy because at this point correct me if i'm wrong it would have to be through the veterans committee uh in order for for consideration correct yeah, I think it's the they call it the modern era committee, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, it's they now have three different committees, I believe. Yeah, and they keep changing. I mean, I still call it the veterans committee as well. Um, and yeah, that that's the only way that he can get in now. Um, now it's 10 years after you're retired. Uh, that's the length of time that the writers, um, the baseball writers can vote you in. And 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 now um it's the veterans committee, uh, which is a small committee. I, yeah. I want to say, uh, it's 12 or 16. I forget. Something but like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's very, very small number. Very small, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, so that's the only way that he can get in. And, you know, I look at Fernando's career. I mean, the first six years of his career, he was an all-star, um, and they were all great years. Um, you know, everyone talks about 81, Um, but 85 and 86 were terrific years. And then he injures his arm, you know, from overuse clearly. And he had that screwball, which was very taxing on, on the arm. And then four years in 1990, after his, his last great season, he goes out and pitches a no hitter, um, against a really good St. Louis Cardinals team. Um, then the Dodgers, unceremoniously release him uh, right before the start of the 1991 season, right after they went to Mexico for three games and for a spring training series. And Fernando was like the conquering hero returning. And of course they sold out all three games because of Fernando. And then the Dodgers release him a couple of weeks later. Um, You know, Fast forward, I mean, he's, he has to work himself back to where he was in the mid-80s. Uh, mid and he ends up in San Diego. And in 95 and 96, I mean, he's, he's almost all the way back to the greatness that he had back in the early 80s and even helped the Padres win a division title. Um, so it was a perfect um, – it was a perfect – um, bow, uh, you know, ribbon around this career, you know, to end it with the San Diego Padres on such a high note. Um, so I think he deserves to get in. You know, you look at Sandy Koufax and again, Sandy Koufax 
maybe had the greatest four-year stretch of any pitcher in baseball history and a terrific six-year period. Um, uh, 1960, well, it would be 61 through 66, I believe. And, um, well, I mean, Fernando equaled that. I mean, he had a terrific six-year period as well. Uh, It can be argued if it was as good as Sandy, probably not, but it was still um, a great six-year run. And, And I think when you combine that with the impact that he had on the game and how he changed the game forever, um, I think that gets him in the hall. And, and I hope that the so-called veterans committee will take all that into account. I think with the veterans committee today, uh, you need some lawyers, um, in that room, um, much like Harold Baines had. Um, and I think that's what Fernando needs, um, for those in the room to fully illustrate, um, the impact that he had not just on the game, but in society. No. And, and, and before I, I, I send it over to, to my good friend Juan here, um, we all, you, you tapped on one thing, right? He goes to the white house, Fernando does. Mm-hmm. And it's widely regarded that more or less he was kind of able to get the wheels of motion of, I'm going to use a buzzword here. That's going to piss some people off, but amnesty. Cause that's what everyone culturally called it uh, in, in our, uh, in our neck of the woods. Right. And, and it's a lot of people credit Fernando with that. And, and he, you know, again, I, you know, we, we asked him to about some of the stuff with Obama, uh, you know, cause that's after the fact, but it's kind of crazy to think that this guy with humble beginnings shows up and he's doing his job. Right. And all these people kind of gravitate towards him because he looks just like me and Juan, uh, you know, pudgy guys, Brown doing the thing, yeah. uh, minimal athletic ability, I'm, I'm sorry, Juan. I'm not trying to throw <laughs> strays here, but uh, but you know he, you know he, he looked just like us, right? And there hadn't been anyone like that to be able to do that. But also to have him on, you know, in the political spectrum, and not get flowers for that either is is kind of again, it all kind of comes back to this weird, uh, this weird dichotomy of uh of, of you know this this you know because again we're in this weird time again. It's it's weird because history has this tendency of repeating itself, especially in our society, whether it be good or bad. And uh, and now we're seeing it now with with the Shohei effect, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But uh, but with that, I, I I mean alone, I mean the position that we have here is is well at least I do. I, I won't speak for Juan. Is he definitely should be considered only not only for the six year span, but just overall for the impact that he had, right? Because yes, yeah. uh, um, you know Jackie Robinson is a very important factor in baseball history, right? So is Roberto Clemente, but so is Fernando Valenzuela. You know, because he, I mean, he, he put eyes on a game just similar to, you know, like you said, I, 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 when I saw that, the whole thing about Babe Ruth, I was like, okay. And, and, it, and it puts it into perspective because you're also thinking about the times, right? Back then during Babe Ruth's days, whether we want to admit it or not, they weren't, they didn't have Fox, right? They didn't have, you know, ESPN. They didn't have, you know, all these things that we have. And, and, and Fernando was not only putting asses in the seats, but it was, appointment tv watching right oh, to see yeah. what the guy was going to do and even now like I, I i hadn't even processed this right after we did the interview with him you know we hear stories about you know he's out and about and people kind of still swarm in and and you don't really see that with a lot of older guys per se right like if you're a dodger fan you know who steve garvey is right if you're a dodger right. fan you know who uh you know i'm trying to think of like a lesser known dodger uh, someone that was actually we had on no disrespect to him because again I'm I'm a young guy Joe Ferguson right oh, yeah. like like guys like that that aren't sworn Fernando is he is the Beatles still to this day yeah and I even wrote a chapter entitled Manias yeah. and um, you know the the only player I think in the history of the game that may have had a similar debut season. Um, to Fernando was probably Mark Fidrich, uh, who was who marked the bird Fidrich. He pitched in 76. And he was another one that came out of nowhere. Uh, but he acted like Big Bird out on the mound. He talked to the ball. He patted the mound down uh, like it was a nest. Um, and he just thanked everybody, you know, after a nice play. 
And then after the game, he thanked everyone in the ballpark, including including security and police officers. And and Fidrich was like a rock star. And uh, unfortunately, he he injured his arm the next season and was never the same. Um, but Fernando, um, his his mania was more lasting um, and nobody filled ballparks like Fernando, nobody in the history of the game. And uh, it was um, must-see TV, um, and everything stopped when he pitched in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, there was just this mania, just like Beatlemania and, and hundreds of years before Tulip Mania, like I mentioned. And um, so uh, we've never seen anything like it since, that's for sure. Speaking of manias, uh, Juan uh, is a big fan of a uh, Hulkamania, and uh, and I mean, you when you bring up manias, you have to talk about the Hulkster, right, Juanito? Uh, all lies. I now this is a feel good episode, so we're not going dis- to uh, discuss <laughs> the pukester, uh, the rest of the humanoids, and those Hammeneggers that worship him. Uh, I won't, I won't digress there, but I do want to go uh, to something. I, I, one of my favorite chapters in the book is dedicated to Tommy Lasorda. Oh. And I felt Eric, you were very fair to Tommy because we've had a lot of guests on the show, uh, especially our friend of the Carnes, Gustavo Arayano, who swears Tommy Lasorda is the guy who killed Fernando Valenzuela's career. And yeah. in your book, you don't shy away from the fact that he was overused and that Lasorda uh, was the had the reputation of overusing his pitchers, but I, at the same time, I love the fact that you argued that Lasorda was the perfect manager for Valenzuela in terms of uh, Valenzuela's personality. But I also love the argument that you you pose. The question is: Was it Lasorda or was it the screwball itself, which was a very demanding pitch? And by the way, shouts out to poor Bobby Castillo, who has now gone down in his career as a footnote. His only contributions, it seems, is that he taught Fernando Valenzuela how to throw that screwball. But how fun was it for you to write that chapter on Tommy Lasorda? And where do you stand on this? Did Tommy kill Valenzuela's career? Well, it's 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 not an easy answer. Um, so first of all, when I put the book uh, proposal together, you know, the book outline, I should say, there was no Tommy Lasorda chapter. Um, but after interviewing all the people that I did, everyone's bringing up Tommy and it just got to the point where I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to do Tommy Lasorda's impact on Fernando justice unless I give the guy his own chapter. Um, so to answer your question, um, is Fernando Fernando, if, if he's not pitching as many innings as he did, uh, did the screwball um, affect his arm? Did it hurt his arm? Uh, I definitely think it had something to do with it. It's it's very taxing on a pitcher's arm to throw that screwball. That's why you never really see it. Um, it was really invented by Carl Hubble uh, back in the 30s, um, and Carl pitched his screwball right into the Hall of Fame. Um, It's very taxing. The problem I had with Tommy um, was, I'll give you an example. Um, So the strike season of 81, it's Fernando's rookie year. And the baseball strike went on for seven weeks. So the strike ends and Major League Baseball decides to award any team that was in first place um, when the strike began, well, they would automatically get um, a spot in the division series, uh, which they created because of the strike. You know, back then they only really had the championship series, one in each league. Well, they created the division series um, to add a little bit of spark to the season. Um, you know, now the season's starting all over again for teams. You can still make the postseason no matter what you did in the first half before the strike. Okay, so... The Dodgers, by eking it out, I think they won the first half by a half a game or something like that. Um, They automatically were going to make the postseason in 81. So you would think that Tommy would have rested Fernando. 
Uh, I mean, he was 20 years old. He had pitched a lot of innings before the strike. Um, I, I understand keeping him sharp, but Tommy was pitching Fernando on three days rest at least a couple of times in September when there was really, really nothing to play for. But boy, they were selling tickets uh, when Fernando pitched. And um, I I think that had something to do with it. Now, whether someone was telling Tommy, hey, you know, uh, you should pitch Fernando, I don't know. I mean, the Dodgers always seem to sell out anyway. They had the highest attendance in baseball for many years running back in that era. They probably still do today. Um, but even in the years after that, um, there was a season, well, right before 87, when he went down with the injury, Fernando was already complaining in 86, um, about some discomfort and he wasn't quite as sharp in 86 as he was in 85. And, and Tommy was quoted as telling reporters in 87. Yeah. Yeah. He just didn't look right at times in 86, like maybe there could have been something wrong. And I'm like, I mean, this is your marquee pitcher. I, I mean, where, where was, you know, where was the exam, you know, to make sure he was okay and so forth. And, and um, I know Fernando at the end of the day was not happy with how uh, the Dodgers um, handled his arm issues. Um yeah, he ended up missing a, a, a big part of 88, uh, didn't pitch in the postseason, that miracle run that they had, uh, beating um, you know the Mets and then uh, one of the great Oakland A's teams of all time. Um, so, yeah, I think in that respect, he was overused. And, I mean, Tommy's the manager. Uh, I think he's to blame. But on the flip side, there could not have been a better manager from a public relations standpoint, Tommy was as much Hollywood as any actor in Los Angeles. And he would take the spotlight away from someone that absolutely didn't want it. And um, so in that regard, he was the perfect manager for Fernando. Um, and he spoke some Spanish and that helped as well. I think it's you mentioned some things and I want to give you credit for this because I think this is your gift as a writer. Uh, throughout the book, I get a very the subtext the subtext to me speaks to the fact that I think Valenzuela was exploited his whole career and the Dodgers have been the biggest culprit. Uh, of exploiting him. And that's why I thought your use of Cesar Chavez was so brilliant because Valenzuela was an immigrant. I mean, I love the story that you tell that when he first called up, they couldn't find his birth certificate. So it, it was just like, how, how do you get him over there? Uh, for years, I have been harping before they announced that they had retired his number that you know, they had no problem not retiring his number, but every year they give out a bobblehead of him or they, they always find ways. You had said you see his jersey out there. They always found ways of making money off of Valenzuela and, and not doing the right thing with him. Um, when you had O'Malley say to Jaime Jarrín, find me the Mexican Sandy Koufax, it's all about money. Even later on in his career, when he signs with the show pods, the show pods are signing him because he's still a draw. Yes, he ended up pitching well those two years. But for me, you said that it didn't end well. And, and that's why I, I, I really appreciate your book also, because it dwells in all those chapters. I, it you Not only is it a celebration of, of Valenzuela, but... To me, those 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 chapters, those last chapters were really heartbreaking because even when he throws that no hitter against the Cardinals, there was no like it wasn't like he was dominating. He was like he struggled to get that game and he threw a no hitter and then they end up releasing him, as you mentioned, from the, the Mexico series. Is it is he justified in having those conflicted feelings towards the Dodgers? Because there's just no way around it, right, Eric? They did exploit him. Oh, I, I think they did. Um, and I think the reason 
why he is with the Dodgers as their Spanish language broadcaster was because of Jaime Harin, um, basically saying, Hey, you know, it's time. Um, and these are my words. This is what I think. I think Jaime Harin went to him and said, look, it's been a lot of years. It's time for you to come back to the family. And, um, if that didn't come from Jaime Harin, um, then I don't think he ever would have returned to the Dodgers and done Dodger games. Maybe the occasional first pitch, uh, throwing out the first pitch of a game. I don't know, but to be back in the family, like he has been for a lot of years, on the Spanish language broadcast, I think that was all Jaime Hurin. Uh, I really do. Um, I think there was some bad feelings there uh, to be unceremoniously cut like he was. And um, Fernando's a very proud man. And even as a as a twenty year old, twenty one year old, I mean, as as you know, I mean, he held out. Um, the spring training of 82, um, because he's like, look, I, I want to be respected. This is 21 year old. Um, you reference Cesar Chavez, um, you know, Cesar Chavez, even though he was a Southern California guy, um, he never stepped foot in Dodger stadium because he remembered, um, those visuals of those Mexican Americans being dragged from their homes and, um, you know, just a righteous man. And, um, so I think it was important to draw some comparisons and to bring Cesar Chavez into this story. And, um, you know, you talk about good fortune. Um, I reached out to Teresa Romero, um, who is now the president of the United Farm Workers uh, Union, the, the title that Cesar Chavez once held. And the person I got on the phone before her was uh, Cesar Chavez's speechwriter. I mean, I'm, I'm like, what? I mean, let me interview you for about five hours. You know, so um, you need a lot of luck to write a book like this. And uh, that, that, that was certainly one. You know, Mitch Poole was another happy surprise. Um, I was guided around Dodger Stadium uh, by the team's historian, um, um, and I, I, I get to meet Mitch Poole for the first time, and little did I know that he was the gatekeeper um, for Fernando's number 34 for uh, more than two decades. And I'm like, well, oh, this is great. I, I definitely want to talk to you too. So um, there's lots of happy surprises, um, when a book go, goes well. And, and those were three of them. Uh, look, I, again, my, it's my, it's, it's your tribute of, of how good of a writer you are. I, I just love the way you bookend the book. You're starting off with, with what happened in Chavez Ravine and then ending, uh, you always made the, I think you were fair to the Dodgers. It's not the Dodgers fault. What happened in solely their fault, what happened in Chavez ravine, but they played a role in it and they could have done more. And yeah. at the end of Valenzuela's career, uh, you know, we just saw it this past year with letting Justin Turner go. I, you can't solely blame the Dodgers for it, but they played a role in particular, Peter O'Malley, especially on the 40 year anniversary of Fernando mania. Yeah. And he's still sticking to that Hall of Fame policy. That's that comes from the O'Malley's. Yeah. And I get it that Stan Caston wants to hide hid behind that policy. That the well, this is what the O'Malley's wanted. Right. It, it just again, it just speaks to uh, you guys had no problem. And like you said, you you pitched him on short notice. You guy just ran this guy into the ground, and then you don't want to give him his due. It's <laughs> It's just the irony of it is you guys now live off of Mexican-Americans supporting the team and then the Latino community. And I think you did it subtly enough um, that it just blends into the into the book beautifully. Uh, the, the, the chapter on the visit to Washington, again, is another example of how Reagan exploited Valenzuela to get the immigration reform. So 
I, I, again, I was just thoroughly impressed and congratulations uh, to you, Eric. This is, this was, it's a page turner and I strongly encourage everyone to go out and, and, and get the book. Um, Alonzo, I think we have some, um, some dates where there's going to be some signings, right? Correct. Wednesday, May 3rd, there's going to be a lecture and book signing at Book Soup in West Hollywood. Um, and then, uh, and that's confirmed. Uh, and then Thursday, May 4th, uh, lecture and book signing at, uh, this one I, I'm going to probably butcher. So I apologize. Chevalier's books, uh, in Los Angeles at 6 PM. Um, and then Sunday, May 7th lecture and book signing at, uh, Chaucer's books in Santa Barbara at 4 PM. All these are confirmed. I highly encourage all of our listeners and anyone coming across this to, to go. Uh, this is, it's like to Juan's point, it's a it's a very well crafted book in the sense of page turning and all of that. And then again, to me, because again, I'm a kiddo. I mean, I'm only 36, but I mean, that, that in the comparison to Juan and I, there's a big gap. But I all I know is the stuff that my dad has told me, right? Because my dad was was a kid then. He was able to experience it. You know, he busted his ass to go spend four dollars or whatever it was to go uh, sit in a palenque, as we call it now, that Spanish for Fight Club. Uh, there in the uh, in the pavilion, and uh, and and watch Fernando, you know, do do what he did, right, and and do the appointment uh, watching. Um, before we set you loose, uh, want to give you uh, the opportunity to uh, to to do your best to sell the book to the kids and uh, and to get them out to these uh, to these uh, the book signings. Yeah, I mean the the book signings are going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going to start off with a lecture. Um, I'm going to talk about the book. Uh, then we'll take questions and then book signings. And like you said, Book Soup in West Hollywood on May 3rd at 7 o'clock. Um, then at Chevalier Books in Los Angeles on May 4th at 6 p.m. And then up to Santa Barbara on May 7th at Chaucer's Books at 4 p.m. And, and Tim Neverett, um, who is one of the Dodgers broadcasters, uh, will be at the um, book signings on May 3rd and May 4th in Los Angeles. So um, you can definitely uh, ask your Dodgers questions to a Dodger broadcaster. He's, he's actually an old fr friend of mine. We played college baseball together at Emerson College. And um, so I've known him forever and he's a dear friend. And, and um, so I know that uh, he wants to help make these events um, as great as they can be. And so uh, you know, I hope to see as many of your listeners out there as possible, shake their hands and answer any questions that they have. And, um, but the last thing I'll say is um, the, the timing of the book, I, I couldn't have been more fortuitous. This is the summer of Fernando mania uh, in that they're retiring his number. Um, so um, uh, I mean, that could not have worked out better. Um, everyone's talking and thinking about Fernando as usual, but maybe a little bit more so this summer, uh, because of his number being retired and, and hopefully a little bit because of this book. You know, what's funny is I, I, so I work in broadcast as well. And I saw Timmy, uh, earlier this year and he was who told me, I mean, we, you, we'd already been, this had already been put on our radar. And then he's like, Oh, you gotta have, you know, a friend of mine on. He omitted that he played college baseball with him. So Timmy, we have a problem. Because you 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 have not been transparent with us, we could have talked about so much more with you. But I digress. Uh, <laughs> Tim Never, a friend of the show, though. Uh, if if you if you're not following him, go follow him as well. But also go follow Eric Sherman. Uh, his, his Twitter handle is at by Eric Sherman E R I K. By the way, for those of you um, uh, that uh, that are letter challenged like I am, uh, go give him a follow. And uh, and we encourage all of you to go out to those signings and and to also get the book. It's a great book. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great read. It's a, it's a page turner. And, uh, and we, we cannot thank you enough for the time and, uh, for the insight, Eric on, uh, on giving us, uh, all that, but also he has other books. Uh, if you're a fan of the Mets, there's some, some Mets books out there. Uh, there's the, he, he plugged it a second ago, the, uh, out at home, the true story of Glenn Burke, baseball's first openly gay player. I read a little bit of that. That's a great book. Check that out. Uh, even some stuff on Davy Johnson, another uh, interesting baseball personality. So go check out all of his things, and uh, and most importantly, pick up this book. And uh, and, and again, Eric, cannot thank you for the time uh, enough for the time and for the insight. Yeah, I can't thank you enough, Alonzo. And and if your uh, listeners do do want to check out those books, my website 
is uh, ericshermanbaseball.com. Uh, but again, I can't thank you enough. Um, uh, you, you know, you have a great show and it's been my honor to be your guest today. No, oh, thank you. We appreciate Be, that. Before we end the show, I want to I want to uh, give you the full bleed lows treatment, Eric. So uh, <laughs> we're going to do what we call the kickback questions, uh, little rapid fire questions great. with quick answers. Um, so uh, my first question to you is uh, both Alonzo and I are big fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And you wrote a book on Mookie, uh, Mookie Wilson. And uh, which gives me uh, to one of my favorite lines from Kirby Enthusiasm when Bill Buckner was on. So I just wanted to say, uh, ask you, what are your thoughts on the greatest line when Bill Buckner says, what the fuck did Mookie ever do? <laughs> um, I have great insight on that. Um, I knew uh, Bill Buckner very, very well. We even talked about doing his autobiography together. Ultimately, he deemed it would be too painful to do, uh, but I did write a chapter with him in my uh, book on the 86 Red Sox, Two Sides of Glory. Um, but Mookie and Buckner are, well, when Buckner was still alive, they were dear friends. They were the Ralph Brank and Bobby Thompson of our generation in that they did hundreds of, of um, signings together. Uh, Buckner was able to put his kids through college signing that photo of Mookie running up the first ba baseline as the ball got past him. Um, so I know that was complete tongue in cheek. He loved Mookie. Um, next question. Uh, you are going into the New York State uh, Baseball Hall of Fame uh, this year. So how does it feel to be a Hall of Famer? Uh, it's an incredible honor uh, that's going to happen in November uh, this year. Um, it's the culmination of, of a long career in writing. I became a professional writer at the age of 14, uh, back in 1980. Um, so it's a lot of years and, um, it's, it's just a tremendous honor and to be recognized for writing and for my love of baseball. Uh, we mentioned him earlier, uh, the pukester, and I saw you smile. So we need to know is wrestling the male soap opera or are you above it and poo poo all of it eric i'm above it and i poo poo all of it. <laughs> the, the only i mean i i do get a kick uh there's there's something you see on youtube every once in a while um hulk hogan and there's this little boy who i mean he's like five years old and he comes into this surf shop are you familiar with this I, I block everything from Hulk Hogan on uh, on my phone, so I don't I don't get anything from the pukester. But I, I I've heard the story, but I'll let oh, you tell it. I'll let and it's not it. satire. He really he, Juan doesn't hate many things. He hates Hulk Hogan. He does well. Well, I I thought he was pretty good in that Rocky movie. Um, I think it was what Rocky three or something like yes, that. Yes, Thunderlips. Yeah. That was the yes. best uh, acting he's ever done in his life. <laughs> he was pretty good, and but but this new yeah, it's it's on. Not that I sit and I watch TikTok. I don't have the time, but some somebody sent me this. It's a quick video of this little boy. He's like five. He comes into the surf shop. And he goes, you know, Hulkster, and you know, and he's acting just like uh, Hulk Hulk Hogan, and. And he nails it. I mean, this kid's like four or five years old. And then the little kid, he rips his shirt off. He's like, ah. And so I never, ever watch wrestling. But that I found really entertaining. There you go, Eric. You had to humanize Hulk Hogan on this show. Just killed him <laughs> a whole bit now. Uh, last one uh, before we let you go, Eric. Uh, on this show, we are about the Dodgers. We're Dodger-centric. We're about Los Angeles, but we're also about tacos. So I know... You're on the East Coast, but I just recently made a trip to the East Coast, and I think the Mexican food has gotten a lot better on the East Coast. So we need to know, what is your favorite taco, and where do you go to get that taco? Oh, man. Um, there's a place that just opened up in um, – in, um, it's at the Crestwood train station here in Westchester County. It's the only one. So um, it's – technically in the town of Tuckahoe, New York. And the name escapes me. They didn't open it up that long ago, but I've been there a couple of times and, uh, and their, and their tacos are great. 
What kind of uh, protein do you get with your taco? Um, I usually just get the steak. Um, like I'll, I'll just get the steak ta tacos. I always get the steak ta tacos and I load it up with, um, uh, you know, with peppers and tomatoes and, uh, lettuce, of course. And, and then I have, um, uh, a margarita, of course, to go along with it. That always makes it taste better. Great. Hey, there, there you go. That, that, that is perfect. So there you have it. Uh, Hulk Hogan sympathizer, Eric Sherman, uh, close <laughs> it out for us, uh, Alonzo. Well, and and if just so you know, if Juan ever runs into Hulk Hogan to to quote the great Larry David, uh, he wanted to stop and have a chat with me, and I don't know him well enough for a, a stop and a chat. That's exactly what would happen between <laughs> Juan and Hulk Hogan because that's how much uh, he hates him. Eric Sherman, uh, go to his website, ericshermanbaseball.com. Get all of the books. Buy this particular book, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine, Fernando Mania, and the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, this episode of the podcast was presented by our partners at Bet Online. Head on over to their website today, betonline.ag. Sign up, use your phone, bet on the Lakers, because that's what we do. And uh, use our promo code, which is Believe, B L E A V, and you will receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Uh, bet Online, where the game starts. Eric Sherman. Thank you, sir. We appreciate the time. And uh, and by the way, uh, low-key savage name on that town that you mentioned a second ago. Well done, Tuckahoe. Uh, thank you again, Eric. Thank you, Alonso. And thank you, Juan. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review to the Bleed Lows Podcast. The Bleed Lows Podcast is a Dodgers Beat production. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.